Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. You've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. And we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. Our goal here at National Security This Week has always been to cover important topics that often don't get much coverage in the media. We could focus today on the situation in Ukraine, but that topic is in plenty of the press, so we'll, we'll focus on another topic today. You may recall last year we did a couple of shows on transnational organized crime. We mainly looked at that topic from an academic perspective with guests from Oxford University in the United Kingdom and from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Both shows were pretty fascinating, and I think we learned a great deal from our guests. Today, we'll start our study of this topic again, and we'll start. We'll take another look at transnational organized crime, particularly in the illegal drug trade. And we're going to have a U.S. federal law enforcement perspective, and we couldn't have a more qualified professional to explain these issues to us than today's guest. Angela Fontritek is the Assistant Special Agent in Charge, or ASAC, of the Minneapolis-St. Paul District Office with the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration's Omaha Field Division. Uh, obviously, that, that division is located in Omaha, Nebraska. Prior to her assignment as the ASAC, uh, Special Agent von Tritek was the DEA Headquarters Liaison Officer with the Office of Foreign Operations, detailed to the U.S. Southern Command in Doral, Florida. Ms. von Tritek represented DEA Judicial Equities and served as the subject matter expert on transnational criminal organizations for the Department of Defense Counter-Narcotics Initiatives. Special Agent Von Tritek began her career in 1999, and her career assignments include the El Paso Intelligence Center as a watch operations officer, uh, as a special agent and pilot for the South Central Aviation Office in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, becoming the first woman helicopter pilot in DEA aviation history, and overseas duty with DEA's Kabul, Afghanistan office, where she coordinated with interagency partners, DOD, and the government of Afghanistan to further DEA and U.S. Embassy counter-drug policies and objectives. Before she became a DEA agent, Special Agent Angela Von Tritek was a deputy sheriff with the Harris County Sheriff's Office in Houston, Texas. She also served 24 years in the U.S. Army and Army Reserves as an enlisted soldier and as a commissioned officer, retiring at the rank of captain in 2008. Special Agent Von Tritek served three conflict deployments during her military career, including Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm in 1991 and 1990-91, uh, Task Force Able Sentry in Macedonia in 1996, and Operation Enduring Freedom 2007 and 2008. Special Agent Von Tritek holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Interdisciplinary Studies from the University of Houston, a Master of Science in Criminal Justice Leadership and Management from Sam Houston State University, and a Doctorate in Organizational Leadership from Our Lady of the Lake University. Special Agent Angela Von Tritek, Welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you for having me, John. So are you uh, at home or in your office this morning? You and I are up on Zoom so we can see each other uh, while we have this uh, discussion today. 
Well, this morning I'm actually on from home because I gave the office a two and a half hour delay driving in. That was good. Uh, to the building <laughs> as a result of yesterday's uh, nice winter storm. So I'm doing it from the house. Yeah, I, I, it, for me, it was a bit of a crawl driving into Northfield this morning. Uh, so normally a 20 minute drive. It took me a little over 30 minutes to get here. So uh, that was very kind of you as the ASAC to give your people a little more time to get into the office. Uh, if, if we could, I'd like to start our show today by learning a little bit more about your career. Uh, what made you decide to, to pursue a career in the U.S. Drug Enforcement uh, Administration? Well, when I worked as a deputy sheriff with the Harris County Sheriff's Office in Houston, um, <clears throat> when you work, as, as you know, for a municipality or a county or a state government, there's only so much professional career development that you can have within a department of that size. And the one thing that I liked about federal law enforcement is many of the federal law enforcement agencies, particularly DEA, um, FBI, ATF, they have a global footprint. So you really do have a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different opportunities to not only serve in domestic assignments, but as well as foreign assignments. So when I had finished my bachelor's degree in 1997, I applied for many federal agencies, nine of them to be exact, and DEA happened to be the first agency to call with a conditional offer of employment. And how do you think your uh, your military career helped uh, play into the into your decision on federal law enforcement? Oh, absolutely. My military career has been a blessing because not only has it taught me a lot of self-discipline and a lot of diversity, but it's it's allowed me to do a lot of travel and many things that you would never get to do, uh, to include learning to fly helicopters, um, that uh, it's, really, it's really made a, bit, a big impact on my federal law enforcement career. Can you tell us a little bit about that selection process to get into the DEA as a special agent? I, I'm sure there's some sort of extensive screening process and uh, a fairly lengthy training program. Ab absolutely, because um, if you're an agent, you have to have a top secret clearance um, because of the work that we do. We have such a global footprint. Um, when I did the application process from DEA, from the time I had my panel interview till I received the conditional letter of offer was 18 months. And when people <laughs> ask me, when people ask me today how long it takes, I tell them at least plan on 12 months and as long as 18 months, just because. Um, it's it's exhaustive. You have to um, obviously be a U.S. citizen. You have to possess a valid driver's license. You must be willing to locate anywhere in the United States. You have to have at a minimum a bachelor's degree or um, certain types of military MOSs and years of active duty service can be waived uh, for the bachelor's degree. You have to be able to obtain that top secret clearance, and that's really what's the most time-consuming thing about the um, hiring process is the, the, the length and the scope of it takes the time to do that level of a background investigation. Um, you have to be in excellent physical condition. You have to be willing to carry and handle firearms. You will receive a um, written assessment test as well as a panel interview, a drug test, a full medical exam, a physical fitness test, a polygraph examination, and a psychological assessment. And as you can tell, that list, it just, it takes some time. But if you can get through it, it's a wonderful career. And I mean, I have really 
enjoyed it. And I really try to, to recruit heavy for qualified women uh, in this line of work because there's just so few of us. Yeah, I heard that uh, not only uh, the FBI, but the DEA as well as uh, really wants to increase the number of women uh, in the ranks. And, and that's a good thing. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the what the training pipeline is like for the DEA? Yeah, the training pipeline um, is really unlimited. I think you're only limited in the agency by how much you're not willing to move around. Um, I've done seven moves uh, total in my career. Um, but a lot of that has to do with the fact that I have no children and I am not married. So it's afforded me uh, the ability to go overseas. It's afforded me a handful of domestic assignments. I have what I would consider a very well-balanced DEA career where I've been in enforcement. I've been in the air wing. I was in intelligence for a while. I've done a headquarters rotation. Um, I did a liaison tour, and now I'm back to enforcement running a standalone district office. So I think you're only limited by what it is that you want to do. So I tell, I tell people all the time, the world is your oyster if you want to do it. And I do want to talk a little bit more about uh, the Minneapolis-St. Paul uh, district office that you lead. But uh, could you tell us a little specifically about the, the training itself when you first enter at DEA? I mean, how long is that? Uh, DEA initial training pipeline before you go out to your very first assignment? The initial DEA training academy is, I believe now we do 19 weeks. It used to be 16 weeks when I hired on, but they've added the clandestine laboratory training to the end of the curriculum. So that adds an additional two weeks. But while you're at the academy, you will experience firearms training. You'll do actual practical um, application exercises where you go out and do mock surveillances, mock arrest. Um, they teach you everything you want to know about Title 21 authorities under the United States Code, uh, federal case law, uh, search and seizure, all the things that would go in a normal in a normal criminal investigations type uh, law enforcement career. Um, additionally, they will spend a lot of time focusing on officer safety. Uh, de-escalation, and um, different aspects of diversion, regulatory things, illicit transnational criminal organizations. So it's, uh, it's, it's very rigorous. Not everybody that starts the DEA Academy finishes the DEA Academy. Um, my Academy class, BA-133, we started with 50 students and graduated 46. Okay. All right. Well, sometimes attrition is okay. <laughs> sometimes attrition is okay, even in uh, even in the military. You know how that goes. Some oh, yeah, people, yeah. Some people finish airborne training. Some people don't. That is correct. Yes. Uh, so when you where, where does that training take place? I know the FBI does all their training at Quantico. Where does DEA do their initial training? That's correct. We do our initial training at the Justice Training Center, which is run by DEA, and it is housed on Marine Corps Base Quantico in Quantico, Virginia. And do you do any uh, federal, do anything at FLETC at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, uh, follow-on training, or is it all in-house? No, we don't, yeah, we don't do anything with FLETC at all. Um, All of our stuff is in-house, all of our training's in-house to include um, our continuing education training. Um, You'll go back for uh, mid-year career training, and then if you promote, we'll have supervisor and leader training, and all that's handled at Quantico. Okay. 
So you are now the assistant special agent in charge for the Minneapolis-St. Paul District Office. Uh, maybe we should talk a little bit about the DEA's organizational structure. Uh, we'll start big and work our way down. Can you talk? Uh, give us a rundown on how DEA is organized? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I think it's important that people know that the mission of the DEA is to enforce the controlled substance laws and regulations of the United States. And we bring to the criminal and civil justice system and other competent jurisdictions, those organizations and principal members of those organizations who are involved in the illicit growing, manufacture, and distribution of controlled substances. So we do that in domestic as well as international markets. And the DEA structures, you have an administrator at the very top located in Washington, D.C. at DEA headquarters, which is a political appointee by the president of the United States. Under the administrator, you'll have a deputy administrator. And then DEA has seven divisions which fall under that, which is obviously human resources, operations, intel, financial management, operational support, inspections. And of that, you have... Uh, the field divisions, and the international offices. And right now, DEA has 239 total domestic offices, and we have 23 divisions throughout the United States, as well as 92 foreign offices in 69 countries. So you can see that we're, we've got a very large domestic and global footprint, and rightfully so, considering the, the illicit drug trade that's, that's going on right now globally. So in each of the uh, different field divisions around the United States, there are uh, a, segment, a, a bunch of subordinate uh, district offices. Is that how that works? That's correct. Um, the, main, the main thing like HR, operations, intel, financial management, and operational support is at DEA headquarters. And the field offices, like the Omaha Field Division, which is my higher headquarters, um, my boss answers to the chief of operations in the operations division at DEA headquarters. Okay. And you talked about uh, the air wing earlier, and you were a, a helicopter pilot uh, or a pilot with DEA. Do they fall that's under correct. operations as well? They fall under operations. That's correct. Um, their, their primary mission is we do a lot of domestic and international support to the agents um, particularly when it comes to surveillance and uh, moving personnel and equipment um, for sensitive operations. Okay. Uh, briefly, uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. We're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Special Agent Angela Von Tritek, who serves as the Assistant Special Agent in Charge, or ASAC, of the Minneapolis-St. Paul District Office of the DEA. Now, we're discussing transnational organized crime and the illegal drug trade. Uh, so, uh, Angela, people from all across the nation will listen to this podcast uh, when it goes out on the podcast service after we do the broadcast today. But we are broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota, uh, and Northfield, Minnesota, and Minnesota as a whole falls under the Omaha Division of the DEA. The Omaha Division is, uh, as you said, headquartered in Omaha, Nebraska, and there are other f- offices for the division. H- how is the Omaha Division broken down into subordinate district offices? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, our field division headquarters is located in Omaha, Nebraska, and we have only one district office, and that's here in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis-St. Paul. Um, We have four what are known as resident offices, which would be a mid-size office, 
and those are in Des Moines and Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Sioux, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and Fargo, North Dakota. And then we also have two post of duty. And what I mean by post of duty, it's usually a two to three man office that does not have a supervisor assigned to it, but they're geographically far enough away from the resident offices that it helps lend support to our state and locals and allows us a larger footprint in the state. And our two posted duties for Omaha are in Duluth, Minnesota and Bismarck, North Dakota. So it sounds to me like the uh, the Omaha Field Division covers uh, Nebraska, the Dakotas, Iowa and Minnesota. Is that right? That's correct. That's a fairly yeah, good size. We have a size. pretty big Midwest yeah. footprint. <laughs> That's a big ge- geographic area. I, and my guess is there probably aren't nearly enough DEA special agents to cover all that territory effectively. <laughs> there, there are not. Um, unfortunately, uh, DEA is, is recruiting like many law enforcement organizations today. Um, not real sure why young. I can't get more young people interested in this line of work because it really is critical. Um, I know a lot of acquaintances that I've had uh, uh, excuse me, across my life who've had family members with a addiction problem, yeah. and it's, it's devastating. Not only is it devastating to the productivity of the work of, the, you know, of people in this country, but it's devastating to the family members, and it's detrimental to your health. Yeah. So. Maybe you could tell us a little bit uh, specifically about your office, the Minneapolis-St. Paul District office. Uh, What geographic area do you cover specifically from the Twin Cities location? So my office has the jurisdictional responsibility for all of the state of Minnesota and all of the state of North Dakota. So I oversee Fargo, Bismarck, and Duluth uh, in partnership with the BCA here for the state of Minnesota and BCI for the state of North Dakota to include all the obvious counties and the sheriffs and chiefs of police and things of that nature. So, yeah, I know we're busy. Yeah, there, I know there's a there's a there's a joint task force down here, drug task force between Rice County and Leeser County, uh, yes. and I know that they have coordinated with DEA in the past. So you probably have some familiarity with the the two sheriffs uh, for these two counties down in this area. Yep. So can you give us a, a sense, uh, ASAC Von Tritech, can you give us a sense of how busy your district office is in, in combating illegal drugs? Maybe, maybe tell us a little bit about some of the major operations that have, uh, that have been done in this area. Uh, I know you can't talk about any ongoing current investigations because, you know, that, that's, that's happening right now. So I won't ask about those. But things that have happened in the past that you can give us some sort of a sense of the scale of uh, the drug trade in, in this area that you're responsible for. Sure. Um, I became the assistant special agent in charge of the Minneapolis office beginning in July 2020. And pretty much since July 2020, the top three drugs that I've seen in Minnesota as well as North Dakota have been methamphetamine, fentanyl, and fentanyl-laced counterfeit pills. And in 2021 alone, DEA Minnesota in conjunction with our state and local counterparts seized over 900 kilograms of methamphetamine, 989 kilograms of marijuana, um, 80 kilograms of cocaine, and 23 kilograms of fentanyl. So this is the first time in my career where I've seen methamphetamine exceed marijuana seizures. So that's how prevalent this drug is in the state. And to try to explain this to to our listeners is... If you want to look at nine, roughly 
993 kilograms of meth amphetamine is equal to a little over 2,000 pounds of meth. So that's the perspective. At roughly $4,200 a pound, um, that equates to $9.2 million of meth that was seized in the state of Minnesota just last year. Wow. Now, now is that... So you uh, can see that it's, it's a prolific business. Is there some sort of a geographic relevance to where you're, you're seizing these drugs? I mean, is it, is, is it in the urban areas? Is it in, is it in the rural communities? A little bit of both? Oh, it's, it's, it's equally from both. Uh, we do a lot of work clearly in the Twin Cities with stash houses um, where the drugs have actually made it past the transit points and they've made it to the distribution hub here in the Twin Cities. So we've done several seizures at stash houses here, warehouses, um, farms, barns. Uh, we've done it all. And a lot of stuff that we've seized is during transit points where uh, state troopers or local police will have made a traffic stop and out-of-state plates, usually from Arizona, California, <laughs> Texas, the border states that, you know, why, why are you in Minnesota in November, December, January, and February? No one comes to, right. no one comes here to ski, you know, that's Colorado's part of you, right. so to speak. But uh, usually, usually on traffic stops, that's where we also get a significant amount that's either secreted in traps in a vehicle or in bags, um, things of that nature. But it's it's kind of equally done that way, stash houses and transit point. So so you and I are both uh, military veterans, both retirees, and we know that there's a great saying in the military so that says, amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics. Uh, and you just started highlighting to me the important part of this whole uh, drug trade, the illicit drug trade, and that's the logistics uh, train. Uh, you talked a little bit about, you know, the drugs coming across the border and then the, the how those drugs make their way up to a place like rural Minnesota, rural North Dakota. Can you talk a little bit about how that smuggling operation works uh, from the time it hits the border? And we'll go into some of the cartels in a little while, but maybe you could talk about sure. the mechanics of the logistics train. Sure. What we've seen uh, with DEA is particularly when it comes to fentanyl and illicit counterfeit pills containing fentanyl is we we do a lot of package interception in conjunction with the United States Postal Inspectors. A lot of people, if you can believe it, mail their dope via FedEx, UPS, <laughs> DHL, and the U.S. Postal Service. So a lot of times we actually catch that level. Like last year, um, we seized over 10,000 pills in a mail package. So it's, and that's just of the ones that we were intercepted. So my, my biggest fear is of the things that DEA and our state and local counterparts have been successful at, how much of it have we actually missed? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what, do you have any sense? Of, I mean, are you, are you catching 10%, 25%? Uh, I would say here in the Twin Cities, considering the volume of stuff that we've seized, I would say we're at least in the... 15 to 20 percent range um i know that there's been a couple of cases that are still ongoing but post-arrest interviews done by our state and locals of this particular individual this was his fifth time coming so i i jokingly tell 
people in the drug trade that I've arrested and interviewed as well. You know, you got to be lucky every time. We just have to be lucky once. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so you, you do you do the interception on the postal side or, or FedEx. What, what's the rest of the logistics train look like? I mean, how, how does it how the drugs get up here? Um, usually it's obviously crossing the border, either as I'm sure as you've seen on a lot of the national news, we'll get uh, finding a tunnel occasionally where they've tunneled under the border to a warehouse on the U.S. side where they're shipping multi-level kilo and hundreds of pounds of drugs through a tunnel. They also do it via motor vehicle, particularly with NAFTA. As much as there's kind of an open border that goes along with NAFTA, a lot of that is put on semi-trailers, um, RVs, boxcars for trains. The list is long but distinguished. And some of it is known, and sometimes it's unknown. Uh, traffickers will just stick things on, on uh, rail cars and things like that, unbeknownst to the railroad companies that own them. Then once it transits across the border then you'll have people that belong to that organization or that cartel that will then receive it, probably step on it, cut it up, repackage it, and then start distributing it out to what we consider the couriers, which are the people that will either mail it or drive it and further distribute it to their teams of other cartel members spread out through the United States. And it, and it literally does go anywhere from McAllen, Texas, all the way to San Diego, California. Um, in Minneapolis and North Dakota, Minnesota area, most of the drugs we seize, we've seen coming from either Arizona or California. Occasionally, we'll get something out of El Paso or Laredo, but uh, the bulk of our stuff that we seize is coming out of Arizona, uh, North Dakota. So you talked about the fact that a lot of these couriers would pro- probably come up to a place like the Twin Cities to stash houses, and then it, and then it what gets uh, broken up and further distributed out to the communities from there. That's correct. So you would, you, it, it's it's not a stretch. The, our state and local counterparts have worked it. Uh, the city of Duluth uh, had a big case last year where they, I think they arrested twenty plus people, and. They were not only getting their drugs from Chicago, which is a large distribution hub as well, but they were getting it out of the Twin Cities and then bringing it up to Duluth and then farming it out to the user level once it arrived in Duluth. And do you see much of this smuggling coming across the Canadian border or is it mostly the border with Mexico? You know what? Mostly what we've seen here is is – coming off the U.S.-Mexico border. I think we've had one weed case, one marijuana case that came across from Canada. But uh, you just, you see, ironically, we've seized a lot of drugs in North Dakota as well as Minnesota, cocaine specifically, and fentanyl that are going to Canada. Okay. So they've made it from the U.S.-Mexico border all the way to the Canadian border. So... And that's generally with the help of our Homeland Security Investigations counterparts. So, And, and I mentioned earlier that uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the cartels. Obviously, the Mexican cartels are sort of uh, the prime movers of uh, the drug trade here in America today. I know there are many others, but uh, can you talk us a little, a little bit about you know, what, which is the main cartel that's, uh, that's in control of, of this area up here, the Omaha Field Division and, and specifically the Twin Cities uh, District Office? 
Well, we're we're actually seeing two different cartels. One <laughs> one is the Sinaloa, and the other is known as CJNG, which is the cartel New Generation Jalisco. We just call them CJNG for short. But those are the two primary Mexican transnational criminal organizations that we deal with in the Omaha Field Division. Both of those cartels have a large footprint in the Midwest. And what I mean by the Midwest is basically let's just take the Continental Divide all the way down and cut it off going east to pretty much uh, the Shenandoah Valley going west. And that big swath of the country um, is pretty much what those two cartel groups control. And, and do they, do I they, would like to. Do those two cartels fight over those the, that territory, or do they are they kind of cooperative? There, well, most of the most of the fighting between those two actually occurs in Mexico. Okay, and they're fighting over the actual processing, like who's processing, and the actual routes of the drugs as they transship across Mexico from Central America. Not not to jump ahead, but when you want to look at cocaine production and cocaine importation, that's coming out of South America, yeah. which transits into Central America. And the trafficking routes that go from Central America through Mexico is where the big fights occur. Going into the United States, not so much because uh, the United States government and our state and local uh, governments would not tolerate the level of violence um, that happens in Mexico on a daily basis. And what I mean by that is it's nothing to see bodies hanging from overpasses and dismembered body parts dumped on the street in warring cartel factions. So you and I know that the governor of the state of Minnesota would not tolerate dismembered body parts dropped in front of City Hall. No, no. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Special Agent Angela Von Tritek, who serves as the Assistant Special Agent in charge of the Minneapolis-St. Paul District Office of the DEA. And we're discussing transnational organized crime and the illegal drug trade. Uh, so we, we mentioned uh, the Sinaloa cartel, and what was the other one? CJNZ. Okay. It's, it's Cartel New Generation. <laughs> it's CJNG, Cartel Jalisco New Generation. Yeah, okay. And Jalisco is the part of Mexico that they control. Okay. So Sinaloa is Sinaloa, Mexico, and Jalisco is Jalisco, okay. Mexico. So. Now, now, I know a little bit about Sinaloa. What, one of the things I've always found fascinating about them is that they are totally vertically integrated. Uh, can you talk yes. a little bit about, about that structure for that drug cartel? Sure. Um, well, they have, they're significant in that they have 15 of, I believe, the 32 Mexican, straight, uh, Mexican states that they control all of the drug trafficking activity. So that's particularly along the Pacific Coast uh, in northwestern Mexico, as well as the southern and northern borders. Uh, Additionally, they have the biggest expansive international footprint over their other rivals. Um, They also deal in total wholesale amounts of methamphetamine, fentanyl, heroin, um, cocaine and marijuana distribution, by, ta- by maintaining these types of hubs in the larger U.S. cities. Um, they also 
control a lot of the points of entry as we were discussing between McAllen, Texas and San Diego, California. Um, I, I have to imagine if, if I could just sure. hit on that a little bit. Controlling those uh, those points at the border crossing where you have tunnels and, and other mechanisms that penetrate you know, across the U.S. border between Mexico and Texas and, and the other uh, border states, that has to be a very valuable bit of territory to maintain control over. So I have to imagine the, the cartels fight pretty hard to keep control of those uh, those border crossing areas. Is that is yes. that right? Yes. And that's and that's, again, um, why the level of violence in Mexico is so bad um, is because, as you heard me quote earlier, at nine point two million dollars worth of methamphetamine in a year. And that's just in the state of Minnesota. Let's think about the volume of money that's being made um, in the illicit drug trade for these transnational criminal organizations, which, by the way, fund a lot of terrorism and arms trafficking across the globe. Right, right. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about uh, the Jalisco uh, cartel? Are they vertically integrated similarly to Sinaloa? Yes, um, they're very similar in the fact that they have 23 of 32 Mexican states, with most of them controlling central Mexico versus along the border like Sinaloa has. Um, They really have more of a Texas foothold, specifically in Nuevo Laredo and Tijuana. And they also control the busiest port in Mexico, which is the Port of Manzillo, Um, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. My Spanish is Quito. (laughs) Um, they, they, they're really for their level of violence and their willingness to engage in violent confrontations with the Mexican government, security forces and rival cartels. So, and because they're such a poly drug trafficking group like Sinaloa, um, it, it just really creates that stovepipe of large areas that they compete with um, and and cause the disruptions that you see. And, and when we talk about this vertical integration, uh, in my mind, that, that means that not only do they control sort of the creation of the drugs, but they control the smuggling uh, and then they control the distribution end. So they're actually making money along the whole process line. They control every aspect of the drug trade and all of the profits go back into their into their pockets. Is that is that my, is my understanding of that correct? Yes. No. And, and I apologize if I didn't explain it um, in the vertical integration. I try to keep the academic lingo uh, out of it uh, just for that reason, because when I. When I talk to young people and when I try to talk to families about the drug trade, if you explain it in a level that they understand it, it seems to capture that spirit a little better. But make no mistake, these and that's why I, I know most people refer to them as a cartel. But I do want to remind our listeners that make no mistake, they are a transnational criminal organization for those reasons, because they manufacture, distribute all of it across not only the United States, because we're the biggest uh, supply and demand, but they will actually ship outside the United States through the Caribbean, Africa, and other nations. 
So you mentioned a little while ago that a lot of the the, the cocaine the cocaine uh, will come in from South America through Central America into into the control mechanisms that the cartels have in Mexico and then distributed up here. Uh, the fentanyl, I think, comes mostly from China. Is that right? Well, the fentanyl precursors, and what I mean by fentanyl precursors is China ships the chemicals required to produce fentanyl into Mexico. Okay. And the Mexican cartels employ actual chemists from other countries to come in and manufacture the final product of fentanyl in Mexico. And then it's subsequently shipped out from Mexico to um, the United States and other countries. Okay. And, and so this, I mean, when we talk about transnational organized crime, uh, these transnational criminal organizations, it really is a global uh, supply system for the illegal drug trade. And the cartels, for instance, are taking advantage of that global supply chain <laughs> to create a product that they then smuggle into America and distribute all across America. Is that is that about right? That's that's correct. And and I also like to try to remind folks that that's why the rule of law is so critical in democracies is because of these reasons. I mean, the, the reason why you have such a global footprint on the illicit drug trade and transnational criminal organizations is because government officials are willing to turn a blind eye to what is actually going on from bribes through, um, you know, family business, you name it, it's it's happening, and that's why the rule of law is so important. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, I mean, you mentioned at the start of our discussion that the DEA has uh, has agents all over the world. What, I think you said 90-some countries we have DEA special agents yes. assigned to? Yes. So obviously they are coordinating with, uh, with host nation government law enforcement all over the world to try and stem this, uh, this global... Uh, illicit drug supply. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about what those agents do overseas? Sure. Um, I would, I'll reflect on my time that I spent in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> just because I have firsthand knowledge of that. But our mission when I was in Afghanistan as an agent was to train our counterparts, which was the Narcotics Interdiction Unit, the NIU, which was the National Afghanistan version of the DEA, basically. So our job was to teach them how to do narcotics investigations and try to help them stand up a branch in the country for themselves to try to combat um, basically the illicit drug trade that was going on in Afghanistan. Because I know people, when they think of Afghanistan, probably think of it in just the military perspective. But even even the Afghan people have drug problems. Uh, you know, heroin, opium is a huge problem in that country. Um, so no nation on the planet is immune to addiction. Every 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 nation has it. And, I, and I, my guess is your experiences in Afghanistan, you probably saw that the the Taliban were were some of the main traffickers of heroin. Uh, out of that That's region? correct. They they were not only they were the main trackers of heroin, but they were the main organizations that were paying farmers to grow poppy in order to be able to to sell that illicit crop for weapons. Yeah. So, so they, they a lot funded, of the opium trade. They funded their entire operation or not entire, but a good portion of their operation was funded by uh, by the heroin trade. 
which means any any time they were able to ship that out and get it over to the United States and we sell that stuff on the streets here in the U.S., there's profits going back into the pockets of the Taliban. Is that uh, yeah. that's pretty accurate, right? I mean, that's kind yeah, of how the system works. That's correct. And, and people are also surprised when you want to talk about money laundering, these illicit proceeds back, the underground, what was called the halal, the underground halal system that actually moves a lot of these monies outside the U.S. banking industry or the global banking industry for that fact. Yeah, it's just a, I mean, it's such a tremendously complex system, uh, highly organized. I mean, it, you you really have to have a, an MBA to understand all of the business mechanisms that they use in the in the international illicit drug trade. <laughs> it's It seems like it, yeah. Uh, what other cartels are operating inside Mexico these days be- beside, uh, you know, New, Her- Next, New Generation Jalisco or whatever they're called? And then CJNZ, the solo. Yeah, CJNG, Cartel Jalisco New Generation. Yeah. Um, let's see. I think we have now up to 15, okay. maybe significant transnational criminal organizations operating in Mexico. Sinaloa, CJNG, Beltran Levea, Cartel New del Nestoro, Los Zetas, Gulf Cartel, the Juarez Cartel, La Familia Mexicana, Los Rojos. And there's, there's a there's, there's a, a constant jockeying for power uh, all across the the different cartels, right? I mean, they're not they're not friends with each other; they're in competition with each with each other. Is that about right? That's that's correct. They they are in competition for who controls the manufacturing and who controls the distribution. And you mentioned and who that controls the money coming back. Right. And you talked a little bit about how dangerous it is right along the US Mexico border for the cartels to control those border crossing areas and the violence that the cartels are willing to uh, employ uh, to keep control of those uh, those uh, transit points across the border. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like for uh, the Mexican people to deal with the violence of the cartels. I mean, what, what's it like to be a an honest law enforcement officer or a judge uh, or or a, another elected official in Mexico uh, these days? I mean, how dangerous it is is it? Well, I mean, most of my research that I've done because I do try to stay on top of a lot of things, particularly with my doctoral background. Um, most of the open source information that you can find, it's not only very dangerous to be a cop, a judge, an elected official, or a journalist with a moral and ethical compass, it's incredibly dangerous. People are assassinated in Mexico monthly for trying to stand up uh, to the Mexican cartels. So DEA does a lot of work with the Mexican government and we try to provide as much support um, as we possibly can, um, trying to foster the rule of law and build that relationship to try to alleviate some of the suffering for the Mexican people. Uh, and mostly, you know, to try to prohibit the volume of drugs that come into the United States. Um, as we kind of talked about when the interview first started, it's just, it's very sad to see the number of um, Americans that have died from drug overdoses for the, I mean, it's, it's horrible. The administrator, our administrator, Ann Milgram came out and really declared a public health emergency 
last year, uh, and, and DEA has started a one pill can kill campaign. Yeah. And that's what we try to strive for here uh, in the state of Minnesota in my office is, you know, a lot of people don't understand that two milligrams of fentanyl is a lethal dose. And there is no quality control on the manufacturing of these illicit pills. No, there is so not. <laughs> you, may get, you may get one pill that has barely two milligrams of fentanyl powder in it, and then you may get another pill that has 400 milligrams of fentanyl in it. So it's just really a terrible situation. Hmm. So is is Mexico uh, sort of the Mexican government, uh, Mexican law enforcement, are they sort of the the number one partners for the DEA as far as the international connections go? We work more with the federal police um, in Mexico than we do the state and locals. Um, I, I think based on a lot of open source information that you can find, uh, it, it will tell you that the, the lower down you go, the more corruption exists. Yeah. Um, in, in the communities and in and in the local and, and state police. So DEA does most of our work with the federal police, with our counter our Mexican counterparts. My guess is is that uh, the the local uh, officials are uh, they probably do that more out of survival than anything else. I I would assume so. I believe, uh, if memory serves me correctly. Um, if you look at the research and a lot of the stories that have been done about El Chapo, um, he, he'll tell you, he, he kind of rides the same storyline as Pablo Escobar, silver or lead, right. take the bribe or we'll kill you. Right. So, so uh, Assistant Special Agent in Charge, Angela Von Tritech, you've, you you have painted a very challenging picture for us today. Uh, we have a few more minutes left. Uh, the transnational organized crime syndicates are, are powerful groups. Uh, they influence uh, our lives every day in ways most of us don't really even understand. And I want to give you a little bit of time here to talk a, 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 about the DEA. What else should we know about the DEA or, or transnational organized crime groups? Maybe something that we haven't already covered this morning. What else would you like to tell us? Sure. Um, DEA, not only do we work... Um, transnational criminal organizations, but also a big mission of DEA is our diversion uh, side of the house. And we work with pharmaceutical companies um, on the regulatory uh, issues surrounding the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, we work with our state and locals, particularly dealing with uh, doctors, nurses, um, thefts of pharmaceutical drugs, or the the siphoning off of legitimate pharmaceutical drugs from folks. Um, I know you've heard a lot of stories about pill mills and things of this nature, right. where we really do try to work with our state, like medical boards and things like that, to address um, bad doctors and bad nurses who are taking advantage uh, of the system. So DEA does a lot of that. Um, the other thing that I think we're very good at is DEA does have an intelligence division. And my personal opinion is we work some of the best human intelligence uh, in the world as far as um, being able to get into a lot of these uh, transnational criminal organizations. DEA's done great work through our special operations division uh, in being able to bring to justice not only the uh, 
the illicit drug side of the house, but uh, we've successfully done trials in the Southern District of New York against arms traffickers. Um, so we, we have quite the global footprint, and it's not just about being an agent. We have diversion investigators, intel analysts. So there's a lot of different things that uh, DEA does that probably most people don't know about that impact their daily lives. They just weren't aware of it. If we could, let's, let me follow up on the intelligence side of that for a minute. Uh, DEA is a member of the U.S. intelligence community. You, you, you have the you served at the El Paso Intelligence Center. Uh, talk yes. a little bit about what happens at at uh, at the El Paso Intelligence Center and how you coordinate with other uh, members of the U.S. intelligence community. Sure. Just what you can, um, obviously. Nothing classified. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, um, when I worked there, I worked the watch operations section. So if you're a partner member in the El Paso Intelligence Center, we provide real-time intelligence uh, to those other partner communities. So um, we're talking Coast Guard, um, other federal agencies, Customs, CBP, Postal Inspectors, FBI. Um, we provide real-time real, real intelligence. So if you were to call in and you had a name or a location or something going on with your investigation, we have the capacity to run it across multiple databases. Um, and if it actually hits on something, we can provide you that agency, that case agent, that person, contact information and, and hook you up to be able to pass that intel directly to each other. So it's it's it does a lot of great work in conjunction with the Special Operations Division. So, And on that federal law enforcement side, so DEA falls under the Department of Justice, just like uh, FBI, is that right? That's correct, and the U.S. Marshals. Yeah, and then a lot of the other uh, federal law enforcement falls under Department of Homeland Security, if, as, if, if I understand it correctly. That's correct. So you've got two different uh, cabinet departments sort of working collaboratively on uh, on federal law enforcement issues. Yes, and thank God, because <laughs> we cannot do this alone i mean i i tell my state and local counterparts the drug problem in minnesota and the violent crime associated with the drug problem in minnesota cannot be solved alone by dea yeah. you know dea brings the leverage to try to bring to justice those individuals on the federal side because they get more time and heavier penalties sometimes but it takes a unified collaborative effort from the city to the county, to the state, to us, to to try to make an impact on drug addiction and the illicit drug trade. And I just think people don't understand how much money is made by the people that push these illicit narcotics, and no one's paying tax on it. Yeah, that, that is true. That is true. Uh, I want to give you the kind of the last word here to talk a little bit about the people who serve uh, in the DEA. Uh, can you give us sort of a sense of, uh, you know, what people are like working in the DEA? I, I, my personal experience, because I've, I've taught courses on the U.S. intelligence community, I've actually had p your predecessors come in and, uh, and give lectures to my students. And what I have found is that uh, there is a strong independent streak uh, in the DEA uh, special agents because of the work that you do. It's so dangerous. I mean, you have to be able to really sort of uh, get inside uh, the mindset of what the drug cartels and other uh, organized crime entities are doing. Uh, and, and the people who tend to move drugs and sell drugs maybe aren't, you know, they're not 
suit uh, suit and tie wearing individuals. And if you're going to uh, blend in and, and be a part of that environment, you have to be a little bit more of a, a free thinker and a little bit of a renegade. Is that is that, is that a good way to frame your your typical well, DEA I mean, special I, agent? I, don't, I wouldn't call us renegades <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, but you have to you have to have a lot of critical thinking, and you have to be the type of person that thinks quick on your feet. Yeah. Um, for those, for those geeks out there that like personality tests and things like that, if anyone's familiar with the Myers-Briggs, <laughs> I would venture to guess that most agents are ESTJs, mm. extroverts that are sensing, thinking, and judging folks. Um, and I say that because when I was an agent, uh, particularly my time in Alaska, I was the lead undercover for a Hells Angels outlaw motorcycle gang investigation. So... You just have to have a grasp of what it is you're trying to achieve and achieving those within the legitimacy of the Constitution and the law. So, therefore, I think DEA agents are better at it because unlike criminals, criminals know what they do is illegal and they don't care versus us. We know what you're doing is illegal, and how are we going to try to facilitate arresting you and putting a case on you and not violating our own integrities or the law? So it's 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 an agency that I think are filled with a bunch of extroverts. Okay. All right. That's that's fair. And I know that when the, the FBI does an investigation, by the time they present that case uh, to the—what uh, the, uh, is it, the federal attorney— uh, the U.S. Attorney's U- Office. U.S. Attorney's Office, for whatever region they're they're working in, uh, it's almost a slam dunk case because they've done such a fine job. I have to think that the, the professionalism, the competence at the DEA is pretty much the same uh, same level, uh, same kind of a thing. Where when you finally present the case to the uh, to the U.S. Attorney, it's a slam dunk case. Is that is that pretty close? Uh, yes, um, absolutely. And we do work um, hand in hand with U.S. Attorney's Office here in the District of Minnesota. So when we start exploring a case, we will already go talk to the U.S. Attorney's Office about it, let them know what we have, what it is we're doing, and how we want to do it to ensure that they're on board. Because nobody wants to invest that amount of time, money, and hard work to take a case to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and they go, no, we're not going to take it. So we generally start very early in our investigations to collaborate with the District of Minnesota U.S. Attorney to ensure that what we're doing meets the federal threshold and that they're willing to take the case so that we don't uh, waste a lot of time and monies um, trying to do something that eventually they they won't do. And at so the DAA, we, we start very early. At the DAA, you're probably not worrying about the street corner dealer. You're you're worried more about the the big movement, uh, big muscle movements of uh, of transshipments of drugs. Is that is that that's correct. That right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, we we will always help our state and local counterparts um, because sometimes there's been several cases since I've been the ASAC here where a street corner arrest actually resulted in tracing it back to a stash house that now turns into a federal arrest. So I, I don't dismiss the street level narcotics because mm-hmm. you just never know where that's going to lead. But it's that it's that spider web of connectivity that uh, you you want to be you want to get to the heart of it, right? As a DEA, yes, because again, the the best way to actually impact the drug problem in this country is to attack the source, yeah. which is the manufacturer and distribution hubs, 
because if you attack the source, you you get the money. You take the money. That's how you hurt these transnational criminal organizations. You you take the monies. Yeah. So Special Agent Angela von Tritek currently serving as Assistant Special Agent in charge of the Minneapolis-St. Paul District of the U.S. Drug Enforcement Ad- Administration. Thank you so much for joining us today on National Security This Week. We've uh, sort of come to the end of our time on the show. Is there any uh, resources that you'd like to tell our listeners about, uh, things that they could look up about the DEA or or the drug trade so people learn a little bit more about this? Yes, I think one of the best sources that that the public can actually go and look up is every year DEA publishes a drug threat assessment Hmm. for the United States. And the most recent one available is 2020 because we haven't, it's 2022, so we haven't crunched the 2021 numbers yet. But um, the most recent version available on the web is the 2020 DEA drug threat assessment. It's a little over 100 pages, but it explains everything. And it comes with like really cool maps that will highlight the things that you and I have talked about that breaks down the transnational criminal organizations that operate uh right in the united states and breaks them down by who controls what and actually gives you an overview of the tcos that impact the united states and additionally i would really like to throw out there to folks again our one pill can kill campaign because it's about saving lives and i just want to tell our young people and college age students that Please don't take a pill from a friend that you don't know where the pill came from because you just don't know. Um, DEA has a website, uh, dea.gov, for backslash one pill. Um, And also to recruit, I want to give a shout out to all my college graduate women and military veteran women who would like a career, even if you don't want to be a special agent. We have vacancies in, uh, as intelligence analysts and diversion investigators. It's a great mission, and it's a valued mission. So I encourage you to apply. All right. Well, thank you again, uh, Assistant Special Agent in Charge, Angela von Tritek. Uh, really appreciate your time today. Thank you for spending the hour with us. Thank you. I appreciate the time. And that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for being a listener to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Stay warm out there. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.